is Our American Stories, and we always enjoy a good-hearted and old-fashioned prank once in a while. And we call these our Americana segments because Americans, well, in their spare time, in our spare time, we do all kinds of crazy stuff. We love visiting, for instance, the Mascot Hall of Fame. I mean, there's a guy who actually became the Philly fanatic, and then when he retires, he's thinking, well, we need a Mascot Hall of Fame. And that's what he does with the rest of his life. And God bless him for doing it because it's fun. And Americans love to have fun. And I think no other country likes to have fun like we do. Most of us on our team love the show Impractical Jokers. And by the way, we love to just crack jokes on each other. This is not a place to come in if you don't have a, a, a good, healthy ego. This is not a place to come to work. But not all pranks are created equal. In our ever-increasing litigious society and our hypersensitive society, some pranks can get you in a lot of trouble. Every year around graduation time, we hear news stories about senior pranks gone wrong. 18-year-old Nick Fout pleaded not guilty in Delaware County Municipal Court this morning to two charges, inducing panic and disorderly conduct. The misdemeanor charges come after Fout, who police say dressed from head to toe in black spandex, entered Westerville Central High School Friday and released seven chickens into the commons area. A senior prank say district officials that involved another student and 12 chickens in all. Five boys say they were at first told they could no longer participate in graduation activities. They thought it would just be funny, but the three boys brought, five boys brought three chickens here to school this morning, and one student captured some video of the incident on a cell phone. New at six, seniors at Slinger High School did a good one today, pulling off an unusual prank. They hired a mariachi band to follow their principal around for two hours. Thursday evening, Justin and 19 other seniors got into the school with a key, his father says, came from another parent. They decked the halls in toilet paper, wrote class of 2013 on windows with shoe polish, and left furniture in odd, unexpected places. And so on and so forth. And if you've been in high school or you just had some time to kill, well, that's when the pranks can start. And while we can't condone this kind of behavior, you've got to admit it's kind of funny. But letting chickens go inside of a school is peanuts compared to this next one. This is a prank of such epic proportion that it made world news overnight back in the 1970s. Our grand producer extraordinaire, most high in charge of the universe, brings us the story of a prank so devious, the tale will warm the hearts of men and women for generations to come. Here's Jesse. This is the story of one of the greatest pranks of all time. Oliver Porky Bicker was born November 1st, 1923 in Chialis, Washington, as a young man, he fought in World War II and took part in the D-Day invasion of Normandy, for which he was later awarded the Normandy Medal of the Jubilee of Liberty by the French government. That's a mouthful. Married with three kids, the family moved to Sitka, Alaska in 1960, where Porky was working for a logging company. In 1964, he started his own business, Porky's Equipment, Inc., selling and servicing logging gear. Woohoo! You see, Porky was a very talented logger and was famous for the ending act he performed every year at the All-Alaska Logging Championships. He could cut down a tree and make it land wherever he wanted to. But our friend Porky here was best known as a prankster, a reputation he enjoyed even before this next stunt. Some of his pranks included using a backhoe to drop an entire tree in the middle of a friend's driveway or placing plastic flamingos in trees to confuse tour boats looking for wildlife. 
But it was the eruption of Mount Edgecombe that made Oliver Porky Bicker a legend throughout Alaska and the world. When he awoke that cold April morning, he looked out his window and could see right across the sound. The idea to ignite the volcano had occurred to Porky three years earlier. Soon as he had the idea, he collected 70 old tires that he kept in an airplane hangar. He waited all this time until the visibility conditions were just right for the prank. Porky also secured the assistance of some of his fellow prankster friends, part of a group calling itself the Dirty Dozen that used to meet every week for coffee. As the pranksters waited for the chopper, they piled the tires in two large canvas slings. Soon the pilot arrived and they attached the slings to the bottom of the chopper. They also took along some smoke bombs, several gallons of kerosene, and some rags. Now in the very center of a giant dormant volcano crater at the top of Mount Edgecombe in Sitka, Alaska, the men piled the tires into a stack, poured the kerosene, and lit them on fire. As thick black smoke began to bellow skywards, the crew got back in the chopper and headed home. The deed was done. Residents of Sitka, Alaska woke on Monday, April 1st, 1974 to a bright, clear, crisp day. They could see right across the Sitka Sound where the familiar sight of Mount Edgecombe, the dormant volcano, dominated the skyline. But today, something was a little different about the view. A menacing plume of black smoke was rising from the crater. It looks as if the volcano is ready to explode! People spilling out of their homes and into the streets to gaze up at the smoldering volcano. The Coast Guard ordered a chopper to be sent out to investigate immediately. Get to the chopper! As the Coast Guard pilot approached Mount Edgecombe, the plume of smoke grew in size. Finally, he was right above it, and he peered down into the crater. At first, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He looked closer, and then he laughed. Stacked in the cone of the volcano, burning with a greasy flame, was a huge pile of old tires. And spray painted in the snow beside the tires, in 50-foot-high black letters, were the words, April Fools! The prank succeeded beyond Porky's wildest dreams, and news of it got picked up by the Associated Press and ran in papers around the world. Even the Coast Guard wasn't too mad about the stunt. The reaction of the people in Sitka once they realized the volcano wasn't really erupting was almost uniformly positive. That is the story of Oliver Porky Bicker and the eruption of Mount Edgecombe. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Now I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'm gonna go when the volcano blows. Let me say it now. I don't know. Under me. 
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love bringing you stories from all over this great country, and especially from a place called Midland, Texas, which got its name from being midway between two bigger places, Fort Worth and El Paso. And our own Alex Cortez brings us our latest Midland story about one of its pastors, a man named Darrell Trout. I was very uh, lightweight as a person. So I don't know if you know about thin people when they're little, they get a little bit chips on their shoulders. So that was me. And so my brother was a football player and big and I wasn't. So I kind of resented that as a child. But as I grew older, I did a little uh, motocross racing and loved the uh, adventure part of life. Bought me a street bike as I got into high school. I started getting hurt because I had no fear. You can't race if you've got a lot of fear. Broke my leg and couldn't race, so my mother didn't pay the payments for me because I was out of a job. And so she was afraid I was going to get killed, so she, uh, she let me sell them to pay, the, pay them off. So I quit racing, quit riding. My uh, now wife invited me to church since I couldn't race on Sundays. I had to go do something with this cast on my leg for almost a half a year. And then I gave my heart to Christ and started preaching, so. I was a teenage alcoholic and used drugs. I gave that up when I came to the Lord, so. I don't know if it was easy. It was simple. You keep doing this, you're gonna die. You quit doing it, you'll live. Uh, Did I ever have a desire? I went through about 20 years of phantom alcohol taste. I could see someone pour a pitcher of beer and taste it. Never drank during those years. And then one day I woke up and went to an event where they were all drinking and I didn't want to be there and I never had a desire for it and walked out and the Lord said, you're free. There's a lot of years of thinking about it, not really wanting to do it. So saying it's easy, I think, uh, is a weird statement for us as human beings. I work with alcoholics and drug addicts every week. I try to train them in the different understandings of, and I know psychology has a lot of terminology, and I know the word addiction has got a lot of terminology. I think all of us have addictions, uh, but they become stronger because the more we talk about it, the more. That's why Paul said, forget those things that are behind. Concentrate on what's in front of you. My wife had a simple way to deal with my own children. One day, I'll never forget, it was a fall day. We had a a little downtime on a Saturday. And we were all kind of basically relaxed in the living room. And my oldest daughter, who was about 12 at that time, just blurted out, I am so bored. And my wife simply got up, went and got a trash sack and said, go out in the front yard and pick up leaves and don't use a rake and you won't be bored anymore. She said, I'm just, no, Mom, I don't want to do that. She said, no, it's too late. I can, you've got to go do this. And she forced her to go out. And our youngest daughter laughed, and she said, go help her. She mocked her sister, so she got to go help. And uh, after that, we never had trouble with the word boredom. (laughs) You knew if you were bored, there's something right in front of you to do. The same way, I think, with life control problems. The more you look at the life control problem, the more you create another problem. But if you just uh, do what's in front of you and stay busy without it becoming a drudgery, 
um, you soon walk away from those things. Me and my wife both have either served as a volunteer teacher, a substitute teacher before they made it. You couldn't substitute unless you had enough college hours. But a neat story there was is there was a bully that was not learning well. And uh, so they invited me into a classroom setting to help him with his math. And uh, so I was in there and he would not. He'd kick back in his chair, put it up on the back two legs and just stare at the ceiling. After about the third day, I'd get him engaged a little bit, and then he'd just get mad at me and just shut down. And finally one day he said, I wish you would just get out of my face. They pay you to be here, and you're only here for the paycheck. And I started laughing at him, and I said, I'm here because I volunteer. They don't pay me a dime. That kid started learning and graduated because he was blown away that someone would do something without getting paid. <laughs> and so... You know, I think that's what we're about. And they usually stuck me in ISS, in school suspension. <laughs> and I guess God knew later on I'd be working with foster children. Five years ago, Mid-Cities put out a letter, our churches sit side by side, that said that one of the greatest needs in our area, because I'd been preaching on find the biggest needs and meet them, and they said their largest need is more children than there are foster families. And so you can't teach what you're not doing, so me and my wife felt that very important to, to start fostering. And so we got our license through High Sky. High Sky Children's Ranch is a place that helps kids who've been abused, from providing them a home at their ranch, to therapy, life skills coaching, and training and licensing foster parents like Daryl. We, uh, honored that letter, came out, started. So far we've uh, helped transition 13 children either back to their families or most of them were adopted. We try to foster mostly just infants. That's our goal. Because we're very busy, both of us, with me, with what I do. She's the church secretary. She also works very, very deeply with children's ministries and she cooks a meal for different groups on Wednesday nights. So we're both very super busy. And we found that if they're school-age children, then we've got to be there at three. And when I do counseling, you know, those are my prime hours to counsel with people. So it, it's almost impossible for us to do school-age children. And then if they're also toddling in the three and four-year-olds, they need to be in a room, but they can't be in the car with us going somewhere all the time. So, but an infant, you got an infant, carrier, you're, you're, you're more capable of handling their situation. They're beside her when they're not in daycare. They're beside her at the desk and she takes care of their need. But we, we think we're helping because we're not going to adopt. Okay, I'm 62. I put it this way. I'm changing their diapers now. Before they get out of high school, they may be changing mine. That's not fair. <laughs> It's not fair to them to have an invalid father before they go to college. But we can maybe get this child that may not, the parents may not do what they should. Like we've had a couple that totally didn't want the child. And until the court removes the parental rights or restores the parental rights in several cases we've had, wouldn't it be better just to have a transition home with this infant? Because if you give this child to the 
couple that's going to adopt, they go a year, two years, and then the mom gets the rights restored and they take that child from this couple who thought they were adopting the child. Then that couple feels like they lost their child. You've had injury and the child has injury because you've just said, you know, this is our baby. Mom loses rights, we're going to adopt them, change the name, whatever. And you've got all these goals and now those goals are toppled. But what if we had a, a transition home? With us, we know our primary goal is we want the child to get restored to the parents. We want them to get better, get well. So we can take care of this infant, invest ourselves, love on them while we have them, and then give a healthy child back to the parents or to the new adopted parents. Why not have a home like that? So we kind of think that's us. It's not really official, but that's kind of the way we look at it. It's not official, but my goodness. Well, Daryl Trout, his bride, and the people of Midland are stepping up. And we play these stories because stuff like this happens all over this great country, and no one's telling the stories. People of faith stepping into the breach. Some people with no faith stepping into the breach. Americans are good and decent and generous people. And my goodness, our faith informs so many of us. And that's why we sometimes tell these stories. And we'll continue to... And by the way, send your stories, anything that your church, your civic organizations have done to help the needy, to help the poor, to help the least of these. Uh, this is our obligation, whether we're believers or not. We all believe this is important. And sometimes we can do this ourselves. And the government's got a lot of things on its hands, a lot of things on its plate. And sometimes, well, we just have an extra room in the house, an extra, an extra set of dollars in our bank account. Daryl Trout's story. In a way, Midland, Texas's story, here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we could send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. Turn to Midland, Texas, and to Pastor Darrell Trout, who practices what he preaches. He's actually a foster parent himself to young infants. The biggest thing we get from pastors, or anyone for that matter, that comes and walks up to me, the biggest thing they say, they can't do it because it would hurt their feelings too bad to see them go. And I think that's selfishness. Now that would be the one thing that I do tell people. Are you so selfish that you're more concerned about your emotion than you are the well-being of a child? So that would be more of a thing that I would probably say, wait a minute, you know. Most of them are with us almost a year or a year. And we've had some that have been a little more than a year. They're part of our lives. And so when they're taken away, if you want to call it that, it's hard. 
We had one girl that she was six when she came to us and almost eight when she left, and we cried desperately for her. I mean, our tears are, tears are a part of the process. If you don't use your tears to make you continue to be invested to your emotion, if you become hard, you're no good, in my opinion, in all of life. So emotion's part of the reality, the genuineness of what you're doing. But we don't not do it because it hurts. We do it because they changed our lives while they were with us. And we treat them just like our own children. In fact, I told my two older daughters are in their, one's near 40 and the other one's in their mid-30s that we love these kids more than we love them, just jokingly. But it, in a way, we've learned how to love that we didn't have when they were infants. And so it hurts, but at the same time, we bless them as they leave us. And uh, after all, my pastor, pastored for, you know, since 1981. And I've seen a lot of people go, so you gotta let a lot of people go. So this isn't a whole lot of difference. <laughs> but we see this next baby come in and it's all over again. We had a child just a few weeks ago that we had for 10 months. He was eight to nine months when he came into our home and started caring for him, taking him to PWP, partnering with parents. Partnering with Parents is High Sky's program to help the biological parents of a foster child to heal, become better parents, and hopefully reunite with their child. Mommy visit, mommy visit, mommy visit. When they go to mama visit, I talk about how wonderful mama is. I don't even want to know that much about mama that, that I would not like. I want to just go by Philippians 4.8, whatever's lovely, good, and praiseworthy, put your mind on that, because I'm not the lawyer, I'm not the judge, and I'm not the CPS caseworker. So I don't have to tell that child what's wrong with mom. <laughs> I tell that child what's right with her. She's getting help. I heard that she passed a test the other day, and she can't wait to get you back. And I encourage, you know, even, I'm talking about when they start comprehending. Even when I bring an infant that has no way to communicate, I tell them how great it is to see mom. Here's your mama. She loves you. And that's my job. Even when it hurts. Even when you may not totally believe it, <laughs> you have to say it because it's the right thing. His dad doesn't want him. He lives in New York. And her parents died in 2013 in New York, I guess in an auto crash for both of them to die at the same time. I would probably perceive that's what it was and anyway got to know her through that and just during the transition of her son back to her she approached me and said can we come to your church and you know I, what would I say absolutely not <laughs> I said absolutely come on knowing this could get complicated this little boy calls me dad you know he's now he's got his stepdad got his mama back and how's this going to work? So I started drilling it into him. I'm Papa now. I'm Papa now. And Jameson would go, Dad, Dad, Daddy, Daddy. And he sees me, he cries, and he wants me more than his mom. So how's this going to work at church? And she's okay with that. Well, just within a few days of them coming to our church, she raised her hand to get her life right with God. And her husband, who had never attended church, he keeps telling me, I don't know what church is. Please help me. And uh, uh, he raised his hand to give his life and dedicate it to God. And so they're letting us do some discipleship in their life. And in the process of that, this little boy's mom says, 
I don't have parents. Would you and Rhonda be my parents? Not just would you be their son's grandparent, would you be my parents? I said, well, parents and grandparents are nosy. And I don't know if you could handle us. And she said, that's what I need with tears running down her face. So the whole thing has turned into, if you want to do a cliche, a family affair, you know. And the whole family's a part of our life now in a positive way. Now, someone recently said, could we interview them? And I said, no, let them get the help they need first. A lot of people would jump right on that and say, yeah, but they don't need more pressure, they need less. And so as they develop and grow, and if everything works well, yeah, I think they'd be a, a tremendous story. They'd, not a story, a tremendous reality for a world that's all messed up when it comes to someone who has a drug problem or an abandonment issue or they did something terribly stupid by endangering their child in it a great reality that that person can become a great mom and that be in their past and not always thrown in their face and so i went with her to court last week and i was the only one in the courtroom for her and the judge was impressed and i was nervous <laughs> And, and I, think, I think for all of them, they need somebody to be there for them or they're not going to change. So it's not just the foster child that needs to be changed, it's their parents. The child I have now, I was told that the mother is more concerned about her dog than her child. She wants to keep bringing the dog to her caseworker visits and in the beginning dropped the baby off at her mother's house on the way to get help at the CPS office and she said leave your dog with your mother to take care of. She said I trust my mom with my baby but not with my dog. And unfortunately we have that society. That, In fact if you want to make my missionary daughter angry who lives in a remote part of an Islamic Republic, she said when she comes home from where she lives in this rough part of the world and sees the more commercials on adopt a pet than she sees for adopt a child. It angers her amazingly. <laughs> she is not a happy camper when it comes to what she sees when she's gone for, she is gone for four years at a time with my three grandkids. <laughs> and her and her husband come home every four years for one year. It's just sad to see that you care more about your dog and your cat than your child. I said to Pastor Daryl, you must be proud of your daughter. And here was his unusual response. You said, I must be very proud of my daughter. I never have used that word with my children. When I read scripture, you don't hear the father say, I'm proud of you. In scripture, it says, I'm well pleased because you obeyed. And so I use the term, I'm so well pleased with you. Because there's too many places in scripture where he says, I resist the proud and I give grace to the humble. And so I didn't want him to be confused, even though it has a double meaning. I did not want him to be confused what that word means. But I believe humility is everywhere if you receive it. It's understanding you can't do it and you need help getting it done. So that's why I'm with Highest Guy. I couldn't possibly go do anything with these children if I don't have a relationship with these beautiful people. To learn more about the High Sky Children's Ranch helping abuse children, go to highsky.org. And I love that he quoted that part of scripture from Paul where Paul invokes us all to forget what is behind us and to concentrate on what's ahead. Because it's so true, and that's for all of us in all of our relationships. He said tears are a part of the process, but if you become hard, you're no good. Emotion is a part of this. 
the genuineness of it. And that one little line, I don't have parents, would you be my parents? We know that sentiment echoes across this country, across the world. So if you can be a parent, if you've got the resources, and I don't, you don't have to be rich to be a parent. If you've got an extra room in your house, churches, get to it. America, get to it. Because as Pastor Trout said, what a tremendous reality we are offering up in a world so messed up. More of Daryl Trout's story, Midland, Texas's story, and America's story. We're a generous nation. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of Daryl Trout's remarkable story, the pastor who's also a foster parent and has one heck of a story and voice. The one elementary school child that we have fostered, she kept coming home with math and having trouble with even just 5 plus 5 equals 10. No matter how many times I said it, she couldn't get it. And so my wife was working with her one day, and she finally just broke down, started crying. My wife looked at her and said, sweetie, it's not that big a deal. And just put her in her lap and started loving on her. And I stepped over there and said, can I help her right now? And she said, sure. And so we put her back in the chair, put the paper in front of her. And I said, what number is this? She said, well, it's a five. And I said, what number is this? She said, it's another five. And how much together do they make? And she goes, I don't know. And I stopped and I said, I pulled a chair over and I said, what's that? She says, the chair. I said, your problem is with math, you think it changes every day. It doesn't. I said, tomorrow, what will this be? She said, a chair. I said, what's this? She said, it's a table. And I kept asking her, what's this? And she finally got mad. She said, it's a table. I said, somewhere somebody told you math is hard. And it's just like this table. It's the same tomorrow. So five plus five today equals 10. 5 plus 5 tomorrow equals 10. It doesn't change just because it's on a different piece of paper. She never had trouble with math after that. And it's just, I don't know. You do that with each child. You don't treat, I don't even treat my own two daughters the same. One of them, to discipline her, go to your room. She loved being with everybody. The other one loved to be in her room by herself. So to punish her, you can't be in your room, you gotta be in here with us. So you gotta, you can't do everything the same for everybody, and I think that's what laws try to do. This kid had this problem, therefore let's make a law about it, and let's do this, you know, for everybody. And you're like, wait a minute. Every situation is unique and has the complexities that vary from one way to another. And you have to back off of who you are just a minute to catch who they are. And that's how you help people. And that's what Jesus did. That's what he did with the woman at the well. That's what he did with his own disciples. He didn't take all of them to the Mount of Transfiguration. He just took three. You don't think the other nine were ticked off? How come they always get to go with you? <laughs> I wonder what those stories were like, you know? We'll deal with it. I took those three, not y'all, because I didn't want y'all up there. And even when they got up there, Peter wants to build a shrine, you know, and go worship it. And he goes, you don't even know why you're here. You know, basically Jesus rebuked him. 
You don't need to build a shrine here. You're here because when you're standing on Solomon Colonnade after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you're going to preach and 3,000 people are going to come to Christ. The next time you preach, 5,000. Next time, 7,000. Then after that, it just said multitudes. So he's teaching Peter. He's teaching John. You know, he's teaching all of them what each one of them needed to know because he knew where they were going. And we cheat Thomas. I mean, what's his nickname? Yeah, right. He took the gospel geographically further than anyone in the entire group. Further than Peter ever went. Further than Paul. Records of Thomas went everywhere. He wasn't doubting. He just had to have something happen to release who he was. And the Lord knew how to do that. And I pray that God teaches me that. How to talk to different people, you know, how to, how to shut up, and that's hard for me. But I've, as the older I get, the more I learn to be quiet at times, you know. When I first started, I just, I was after everyone. Do this, you need to do this. You got two empty bedrooms, what's wrong with you? I had that mentality, I still do. I think everyone should do it. I just don't think everyone will commit to it and will do it. But I won't ever stop asking him for the money and resources. <laughs> you can do that for sure. But um, I mean, I, there's about 14 million Christians in Texas, close to 30,000 foster and orphans. And you add that up, it wouldn't take but a small percentage to get their act together, take these children in and love them and give them a family first instead of a, oh, well, let's just give them a bed off the street somewhere. I think they need a family that'll take them places, go on vacations, take them to the parties, you know, not get a babysitter all the time. We do get babysitters when we have to and, and meetings that we can't take children to. Don't get me wrong. But as far as everyday activity, they go with us. We have them one, two, and three at a time and say, you know, look, it's just part of, the, part of the deal. They're our family. So I don't know, you know, why, why don't good, I mean, I, I was at that meeting, one of the speakers, and I won't mention his name because he said, stop rebuking me. But, uh, and I was lovingly doing it, but he said, what we want to do is realize that, you know, people our age, and he's 60 and I'm 62, he said, well, we can't take foster children in, but we could respite. Respite is relieving an adoptive or foster care family for a few hours or a few days to give them time to rest. I said, wrong. I said, I've kind of started trying to figure it out, and I will get a number. You, you mark my words, I'll get a number. How many retirees have empty bedrooms, nice homes? I'm not talking just retired and barely surviving. I'm talking about, I wonder how many professional people retire and are doing pretty much nothing. <laughs> and um, have three or four bedrooms, and all they use them is at Christmas when all the kids and grandkids come home. And I'm gonna figure out that number and start saying, okay, we'll get your respite help at Christmas when your grandkids come home, but you need to put a child in there. You need to be a parent to one of these kids, take them to church with you, Show them what family is like. Show them what success is like. I mean, I wonder how many foster children get in homes that have no real success. Would love to go into a home and be taught by someone who's retired from, let's say, investments. And be taught 
at age six, this is what it looks like if you challenge yourself. <laughs> and they start wanting that, you know. I mean, they don't, no one gets anything either addiction related or success related without a taste. This is what it tastes like to be successful. Wouldn't it be great to expose children to success? So I'm gonna figure out how many retirees have got some nice homes with empty bedrooms and probably have two homes, one in, on the beach down there at Padre or something and a home somewhere in Amarillo or Dallas, you know. I'm like, okay, you got like 16 bedrooms and there's no kids in them, you know, and you're a Christian, I'm sure God's gonna be pleased with you one day and say, I had some kids on the street behind your house about four miles. <laughs> you weren't there for them. So I'm gonna use the guilt tactic. And if these children don't get adopted before they're 18 years old, what they call aging out of the foster care system, they won't have a real family, a forever family, that they can call their own forever. They won't have a home for Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, all of the holidays. And more importantly, they won't have a shoulder to lean on in everyday life. They're the most troubled children on the planet, the ones that age out. Uh, that my heart breaks there as much as it does for a four-pound meth baby. The criminal justice system forecasts annually how many people will go to prison, and one of the top criteria is they look and see how many will age out of foster care because more than half go to prison within a year. They also have determined that female part of the foster care system, when they age out within a week, if they don't have family to go to or somewhere they can go or college or something or don't have a job or whatever, if they are pretty much on their own, they go into prostitution within a week. Sorrowful situation in LA and Phoenix with where a friend of mine, Kyle Bateman, who runs Phased In in Wichita Falls, trying to raise funds to get homes built for kids who age out. Uh, he was out there and ran into a lady that said they kept seeing a white van show up, drop kids off, where they were out trying to get food distributed to the homeless. And they kept saying, well, what's this white van? They said, well, it's the CPS office bringing the kids down here that age out with a bag of clothes. And they open the door, the kids get out and they drive away. Can you imagine having that job every day, leaving kids to fend for themselves like this? Well, you know, they get so caught up in this is all there is that they shut their mind off. They're just like a butcher, you know. That's why they, in the early days, you couldn't serve on a jury if you were a butcher because you hardened yourself to blood. And he said, what? So that's when he said, we've got to do something. So he came back to Texas. Surely it's not happening in Texas and found out there's really no place for him in Texas. A couple of makeshift type situations that get a little government support, but here we go. They really don't get help. Come on couples, come on families. Let's, let's get these children either adopted or adopt them. And what a story, Daryl Trout's story from Midland, Texas, and great job as always to Alex. And we love discovering parts of America, towns in America, and then we dig in and lots of remarkable things are happening and lots of needs need to get met. And we're the ones to do it. And to make sure you do your part, or at least help, let Pastor Daryl Trout do his, 
go to highsky.org to learn about the High Sky Children's Ranch in Midland, Texas. And by the way, if you're thinking about doing something like this in your own town or your own state, go visit him. We have this remarkable thing called franchising, and it works. And go there, learn from him, start something like this in your town with your church, with your civic organization. Get it done. This is Lee Habib, Daryl Trout's story. In a way, Midland, Texas is so many orphan kids and kids in need. Here on Our American Stories. Changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down. And his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. This is Our American Stories. It's been called the peacemaker, the equalizer, the gun that won the West, Colt. The name is legendary. The gun... An historic American icon. The Colt revolver helped tame the frontiers, win wars, and spark a revolution in American manufacturing. There's an old West adage that goes something like this. Quote, God created man, Abe Lincoln freed them, but Sam Colt made them equal. Samuel Colt became America's first industrial tycoon, and his faithful wife, Elizabeth, proved herself to be no less extraordinary, making Sam Colt's legend bigger than ever, and his empire, her own. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, quote, Samuel Colt's life was the American story written in capital letters. Let's take a listen to that story. Samuel Colt is born July 19th, 1814 in Hartford, Connecticut. His first five years of life are spent in privilege because of his father's business success. But from the age of six to 14, Samuel Colt loses his mother and sister to tuberculosis and then loses a brother and another sister to suicide. At 11, he's indentured to a farmer. Colt begins reading from the Compendium of Knowledge, a scientific encyclopedia containing biographies of famous inventors. He gains knowledge of practical chemistry and becomes obsessed over fireworks and underwater explosives. Then, after one of his fireworks experiments sets his school ablaze, he's expelled. Here's William Hosley, author of Colt, The Making of an American Legend. Sam Colt came from a kind of difficult background. His mother died when he was seven. He didn't take to his formal studies but he liked taking things apart and putting them back together again. He also liked explosives. He was kind of a prankster, and it got him in a lot of trouble. After his expulsion, Colt's father enlists his troublesome 16-year-old boy as a seaman on a ship. You watch your back, but you be respectful. You understand me? That will be sailing halfway around the world to Calcutta, India. Well, here he is. Nice strong worker, just like I told you. 
His father hopes that the journey will teach his son responsibility and that he will learn a trade as a seaman. But instead, the trip fills Samuel Colt with another idea. Colt is fascinated by guns and believes there's a way to make them better. It's the early 19th century. Battles are fought with sabers and single-shot muskets. Here's Ashley Lubinsky, curator at the Cody Firearms Museum in Cody, Wyoming, explaining the limited and cumbersome nature of guns at the time. You had to load it from the top of the gun, and you took a whole cartridge, which was powder, the projectile, and paper, and you would end up putting it down the barrel with a rod. So loading single shotguns weren't horribly efficient. It would take you about a minute or so to load three shots if you were really good. Colt has a revolutionary idea inspired by the giant steering wheel on his ship. He sees that the mechanisms that are used to uh, steer and control these ships had ratchets. And when they rotated the wheel, that it would cock and that these ratchets would hold it in place. Like the ship's wheel with axles, spokes, a barrel, and handles, Colt notices that regardless of which way the ship's wheel spins, each spoke always came in direct line with a clutch that could be set to hold it. Colt envisions a firearm with a cylinder that can turn after each shot and lock, and then be fired multiple times. While on board the ship, Colt carves a wooden prototype of a revolving cylinder mechanism out of scrap wood. This is the beginning of the revolver. When Colt returns to America, he's a young man determined to turn his vision into a reality. Colt is a complex man who learns self-promotion. At an early age, the young entrepreneur developed a hustler streak. From 1832 to 1836, Colt travels throughout America as Dr. Colt, spelled C-O-U-L-T, as the playbills read, giving demonstrations of the newly discovered nitrous oxide, or laughing gas. In Out Where the West Begins, Phil Anschutz adds some color. Quote, Clad in a fashionable coat and top hat and surrounded by smoking beakers, wax demons, mummies, and exploding fireworks, Colt persuaded spectators to sniff a bag coated with nitrous oxide. Sam guaranteed his audience a good half-hour's laugh at the resulting spectacle. Colt's mix of salesmanship with showmanship is on par with the likes of P.T. Barnum. While touring the country, Colt goes looking for investors interested in his revolver. Go on. Take a shot. How about another? A new revolver? Works the same way. It always keeps you loaded. This is going to revolutionize the world. He is the consummate salesman. When Sam Colt would come to you and ask for money, he's so over the top and he's such a unique personality, it's going to completely win over whoever he's asking. With the help of wealthy New Jersey relatives and friends, 
Colt raises $230,000, the equivalent of over $6 million today, and begins manufacturing his revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? And when we come back, more on the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we continue with the remarkable story of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. So what do you think? Am I onto something? There were bugs at first. You don't want any chance that if you pull the trigger on a revolver, more than one bullet's gonna go off at the same time, or even blow up the cylinder. Colt improves his design, and in 1836 is awarded a patent to a 28 caliber, five-shot repeating firearm with a revolving cylinder. It's called the Colt Patterson, and it's like nothing the firearms industry has ever seen. Colt is 23 years old. But Colt's new revolver is proving a tough sell. Lawmen and military are not willing to take a chance on such a new and untested design. In 1842, after six years and a production run of 5,000 pistols and rifles, Colt declares bankruptcy and liquidates his assets. But 2,000 miles southwest in the new state of Texas, the Colt revolver is about to be put to the test. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Sam Colt's first large sale of his revolver went not to the U.S. Army, which rejected the gun outright, but to the Texas Navy. But plagued by lack of funding and political battles, the Texas Navy nearly ceased to exist by 1844, and its Colt's revolvers then went to the Texas Rangers. The Rangers' first use of the revolvers came in the Battle of Walker's Creek in June 1844. Jack Hayes and 15 of his Rangers were out scouting for Comanche Raiders when the Comanche discovered them. The numbers were to the Comanche liking. Chief Yellow Wolf led more than 70 Comanche warriors. What Yellow Wolf and the other Comanche didn't count on was the Colt revolver. And every ranger was armed with two Colts. They were used to hearing the one shot go off, and then they all scramble to load, and then the next shot goes off. But imagine then hearing bang, bang, bang. 
would have been incredibly powerful and something to be incredibly intimidated by. After several failed attempts at charging and overwhelming the outnumbered rangers, the Comanche broke and fled, dropping shields, lances, and bows. A Comanche chief said he would never fight the rangers again because they had a shot for every finger on their hands. On the ridge! Rifles! Then in 1846, the Mexican-American War breaks out after the constant border battles between Captain Samuel Walker and his Texas Rangers in the country of Mexico. For Walker and his men, the time it takes to reload a gun is often the difference between life and death. For every shot the Mexicans fire with their standard rifles, Walker's men can fire five. It's the beginning of a new era in warfare. Sam Walker began experimenting with how to use this. It's like, what do they got? What is this secret weapon? This is something we've never seen before. You don't have to have a single shot. You don't have to load the gun. Every time you fire, you've got something that you can load several rounds in. On November 30th, 1846, Captain Samuel Walker writes Samuel Colt a letter that will change the course of history. That letter reports how the Colt pistol changed the way he and his rangers fight. With a $25,000 U.S. government contract for a thousand pistols that Walker arranged, and with the design modifications that Walker suggested, a larger gun with six shots rather than five, Sam Colt re-entered the gun manufacturing business in 1847. The revolver went through the process of user influence, influencing both design and also the practical use of the thing. They tinkered with this invention. Colt develops a 44 caliber, four pound, nine ounce revolver named the Walker after the man who made it happen. Increase the black powder by 60 grains. The barrel to nine inches. The Colt Walker is a much heavier gun, heavier caliber than Colt's original invention. But these Texas Rangers could handle that type of firearm. Many consider the Walker the mightiest handgun of its day, with firepower that won't be matched for 90 years until the release of the 357 Magnum. Colt's business soars, and the name Colt becomes synonymous with revolvers. Sam Colt created a brand around himself. And so what he was trying to establish there was that he was the guy, he was the brand. When you saw him, you thought success. But Colt's most revolutionary idea isn't in his new design, it's in how he puts it together. More than half a century before Henry Ford used mass production assembly lines in his automobile factories, Colt employed them to produce his revolvers in his enormous Hartford armory beginning in the 1850s. Using interchangeable parts, Colt's armory could turn out 150 weapons per day by 1856. The mass production allowed Colt to make his weapons more affordable to gun buyers settling in the West. 
Colt's mass production achievement is only matched by the revolver's quality. Samuel Colt is an absolute perfectionist. Now, one of these guns is not up to Colt's standard. You choose. Wrong. It's this one. See the blemish? I don't allow any imperfections to leave my factory. Americans are also taken with the way in which this pistol of industrialization was itself like a small factory. It was a bullet-firing machine as opposed to a single-shot instrument. Once Colt perfected the system for mass-producing complex metal instruments like firearms, that system was readily adapted to make typewriters, sewing machines, and eventually bicycles, motorcycles, automobiles, cameras, you name it. In 1849, as the California gold rush begins, Colt develops the legendary 1840 pocket revolver, the single most successful pistol produced in his lifetime, with 325,000 sold by the time of his death. Most historians agree that the most serious mistake Colt makes is firing employee Roland White after he presented him with a patent on a new innovation. Powder and ball in the front, primer in the back, reloading would be much faster. Up until this time, the shooter poured powder into each of the six cylinder mouths, then push a bullet over the powder, and then load a percussion cap on the rear of the cylinder, making the reloading process cumbersome, to say the least. Roland White came up with this idea for a board through cylinder that would allow you to load the firearm from the rear. It's not something Colt had. The fire from one shot will set off every chamber. It's dangerous. And when we come back, the rest of this remarkable story, Samuel Colt's story, the revolver's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we return to the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. And now the last installment of this story. With almost a complete monopoly on the revolver, Colt isn't ready to take a chance on something new. Here's Mitt Romney. My dad used to say, there's nothing as vulnerable as entrenched success. Sundance of an enterprise feels it has no real competition. It becomes complacent, and ultimately it can get wiped out by a small upstart that comes out with a better product. Fired by Colt, Roland White takes his groundbreaking idea to two men who intend to be Colt's biggest rivals, Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson. They jump at White's patent and gladly pay him a royalty. With this move, one of the most iconic names in gun making is born. Smith & Wesson. Samuel Colt built his business on the back of the Mexican-American War. Now was just a drop in the bucket compared to the impact of the gold rush and Western migration. Then, in the summer of 1856, Colt marries 29-year-old Elizabeth Hart, the daughter of a devoutly Christian and affluent Newport family. Take a seat. But as the 1850s draw to a close, the southern states begin arming themselves. How can I be of service? I'm here representing some gentlemen that are dedicated to a cause. Colt has been supplying arms to the U.S. military for years, but the military is about to be split in two. It's time for Samuel Colt to decide where his loyalties lie. When you're on the outbreak of war, there's a really difficult problem that arises from firearms manufacturers, and that is the balance between loyalty and being a good businessman. In this case, this is a war breaking out in the United States between the North and the South. This isn't America and the other guy. This is their home. In 1860, just one year before the Civil War begins, Colt sells the modern equivalent of more than $3 million worth of guns to the South. A risky move for a Northern businessman. Colt gets labeled a Southern sympathizer, and worse, a traitor. Sam Colt got into a lot of trouble on the eve of the Civil War because he also was believed to be arming the South. But in fact, Colt supplied arms to both sides before the war. After the war began, that stopped. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Colt doubles the size of his armory and his factory is operating around the clock. But for Sam Colt, the success he craved and achieved would ironically contribute to his death. On January 10th, 1862, Samuel Colt dies of gout complications at the age of 47. By this time, Samuel Colt has made and sold one million guns. His 35-year-old widow Elizabeth is left in control of the company and a personal fortune of $15 million, the equivalent of over $300 million today. Elizabeth keeps the business running, even as the war wages on. 
After losing four children and a husband within five years, Elizabeth has begun to emerge from a year of mourning. Then, on February 5, 1864, Colt's armory bursts into flames and burns to the ground. Elizabeth stands at her window and watches her husband's vision go up in flames. Many believe Confederate sympathizers started the blaze. However, no one ever discovers the real cause. Elizabeth resolves to rebuild the armory while continuing wartime operations in an unburned wing of the building. Elizabeth Colt would also continue to innovate, eventually producing what would become the most famous Colt gun of them all, the Colt 45, also known as the Peacemaker, and what we know now as the gun that won the West. It is still in production to this very day. Here again is Dr. Roger McGrath. While much has been made of the 1873 Colt Peacemaker, and rightfully so, many of the famous gunmen of the Old West quickly replaced their single-action Peacemakers with Colt's new double-action revolvers in 1877. Colt offered the new revolver in a 38 caliber, which was called the Lightning, and in a 41 caliber, which was christened the Thunderer. Among the many gunslingers who quickly adopted Colt's new revolver were Billy the Kid and John Wesley Harden. When the Civil War finally ends, America is transformed in countless ways, not least of which is gun ownership. Most of the soldiers come home with a prized possession. The Civil War really marks a turning point for firearms in American history with a revolver and with mass production really taking off. People were able to start buying revolvers. It's really the birth of a huge movement in America with firearms. People are still carrying the revolver because it's a reliable gun today. Colt transformed his products into icons, and his Colt revolvers became fixed in the American imagination as the very symbol of Western independence. The story of the Colt company after Colt family ownership continues to be one of innovation in weaponry. The Gatling gun, Browning rifles and machine guns, and the M16. During the 19th century, Samuel Colt did for pistols what fellow Connecticut native Eli Terry did for clocks. He made guns affordable for the average American. Couple that with the spread of armaments after the Civil War and what you have is an American inheritance passed on from the 19th to the 20th century. Anchored to the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Americans in the 21st century have also inherited the notion that gun ownership is a normal, solidified, and self-evident aspect of American life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and what a story the cult story is. And by the way, we've gotten 
Any number of business stories from the great book by Phil Anschutz, Out Where the West Begins. There's a part two, and we're going to be digging into some of those stories, too. And that's more of the cultural uh, effect of innovators there. Uh, but Out Where the West Begins, the first one, was about business leaders and how they impacted the growth of this country. And it's ignored in textbooks. It's ignored in schools. Uh, been a business innovators and how they've changed America. And we've done the, the Coors story, the Cyrus McCormick, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie. Other stories, by the way, that we've done right here on Our American Stories. Henry Ford's, Harley Davidson's, Steinway, the story of the piano makers in New York. Sam Walton, who changed retail forever. And Fred Smith, who had an idea when he was at Yale and in college that overnight delivery could happen. And he was the founder of FedEx and told us here on this show that everything he learned, he learned when he was in the Marines. These business stories are stem winders. No one knows what's going to happen. And as we learned from the cult story, changed America as we know it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, Samuel Colt's story, The Birth of the Revolver, its story. More after these messages. stories and we often bring you the story of a song we've covered dozens of them on this show and you can hear them all at ouramericannetwork.org another brick in the wall there goes my life jesus take the wheel georgia on my mind and light my fire by the doors and now we bring you another doors song story and it's told by ray manzarek best known as the keyboardist and founding member of the doors with Jim Morrison. Sitting at his Rhodes keyboard, Manzarek demonstrates here the creation of Riders on the Storm like the masterful musician that he was. So one day we're jamming in the studio, I mean in our rehearsal studio, in the Doors workshop before uh, we got, uh, before we started recording. And uh, for some reason or another, Robbie was playing his twang guitar. And we were doing a old cowpoke went riding out on dark and windy day. And the Jim said, I got lyrics for that. I got lyrics for that. And he had uh, Riders on the Storm. Riders on the Storm. And I said, wait, wait, okay, that's great, man. Riders on the Storm. We can't, but we can't do, to, we can't do Vaughn Monroe. Or the, 
old cow poke run riding out one dark and windy day. So I said, let me see what I can do with this. And here's what I came up with. We got to put some jazz to it, make it dark. And sure enough, this is what happened. But before we get to that, oh, oh, oh Jerry Chefs, when, when he comes in, we've got the whole thing together. And Jerry Chef says, What's the bass line? I said, Like, simple. E minor, A major. He said, Oh, man, that's impossible. I said, What? For you? That's not impossible. Let's, look at this. It's like nothing to it. And he said, Uh uh. That's, that's on the piano, right? That's on the keyboard. Sure, that works great on the keyboard. There's nothing to it. Watch this on the bass guitar, and I don't know what the hell he did. He had to go through machinations, like turning his wrist up virtually upside down, inside out, trying to play it. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, man, but it sounds so good. And it's so easy on the keyboard that you got to play this. And he went, okay, okay, I'll play it. And here's the rain part. Thunder. After we finished the song, he said, Oh man, I've got super rain and thunder. It's riders on the storm. It's raining on the desert, right? Yeah, exactly, Bruce. Raining on the desert. He said, we got to put in some, uh, uh, some rain and thunder. So sure enough, I mean, the whole thing starts with... And then that bass line. Another one. Ender Morrison. Riders on the stone. Riders on the stone. Into this house we're born. Into this world we're thrown. Like a dog without a bone. Actor out on loan, riders on the storm. So it's basically a blues song. It's a one-four-five, except we change the five. And this insane part that Morrison sings: "There's a killer on the road, brain is squirming like a toad." Take a long holiday Let your children play If you give this man a ride Sweet family will die Killer on the road Yeah, Robbie And we're listening to the one, the only Ray Manzarek, founding member of The Doors As he walks us through the creation Of this masterpiece Riders on the Storm, which was released in June of 1971. 
Ray goes on to give some vivid insights to the haunting lyrics crafted by Morrison. And again, this is why we love telling these stories. You're hearing it from Manzarek himself, taking us into the song, taking us into the DNA, into the coding of this song. And by the way, you don't hear music like this in a mixture of jazz and blues and country western and all mashed together in this creative and almost brilliant way. And what a story Morrison's telling. He's really putting you in a place. And so let's continue with Ray Manzarek. And then Jim sings, Girl, you gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. Take him by the hand. Make him understand. His world on you depends. Our life will never end. Gotta love your man. He had the idea to make a movie about a hitchhiking killer. And that's, if you give this man a ride, sweet family will die, killer on the road. But he couldn't, he couldn't leave it at that. He couldn't, the song was just too haunted and too beautiful. And almost, almost as if he had a premonition. And certainly, he knew he, at this point, singing this vocal, he knew that he was going to Paris. You know, he knew he was going to Paris. He hadn't told anybody before we did this vocal, but he knew he was going to Paris. And he was singing his love to Pam and trying to wipe out in his mind and on the planet that killer on the road. So he says, girl, you've got to love your man. Girl, you've got to love your man. Take him by the hand. Make him understand. His world on you depends. Our life will never end. What a great line that is. I mean, isn't that the ultimate love? His world on you depends. Our life will never end. Gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. Keyboard solo. Bring in the thunder. Then Densmore kicks it in again. And we're back on the highway. 
Riders on the stone. Jim's back in. Riders on the stone. Into this house we're born. Into this world we're thrown. Like a dog without a bone. An actor out on loan. Riders on the stone. Robbie plays some great guitar. Jim and that haunted voice. Riders on the stone. Riders on the stone. And what a performance. You just want it to not stop, actually. And that's what we do here in Our American Stories. The story of a song. That's Ray Manzarek. Riders on the Storm. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do. And particularly our stories of a song. It's one of our favorite regular regular features. Another Brick in the Wall. There Goes My Life. George on My Mind. Light My Fire. And many many others and again thanks to Ray Manzarek for that instruction it's like it's like going to school but the kind of school you wish you'd had in your life but never did and so we leave where we started this is our american stories <laughs>